Welcome to Season 2 of Football Uncovered. In Season 1, we took you inside Blackburn and Leeds, Portsmouth and Liverpool, FIFA and a lot more. We heard extraordinary stories of football chaos, cock-ups and outright corruption. This season, we're going inside eight more Premier League clubs, as well as having two special episodes. One about life after the Premier League and one about the very future of club football at the highest level. I'm your host, Will Brazier, and every episode, of course, I'm joined by Sporting Intel's Nick Harris. Nick, are you well? I'm good, thank you. Yeah, raring to go with season two. Love that. This season, we'll also be joined by a guest each week, usually a fan of the club we're talking about, or someone who has followed them closely and knows all the inside stories. As well as sharing all the usual inside stories from each club, we'll be looking, of course, at the owners of the club, how the current owners came to be there, and where they've taken the club so far, and what is next. We start season two with the current champions-elect Manchester City, who at the time of recording, approaching the middle of March, are massive odds-on favourites to win the Premier League, the Champions League, the greatest domestic cup competition in the world, the Carabao Cup, and the FA Cup. At no point in football history has a quadruple seemed so possible, and this comes against the backdrop of a Premier League and League Cup double in 2018, a domestic treble in 2019, which was the 100-point season, a League Cup, a runners-up, there's so much, there's records, and the relentless winning streak keeps on continuing. All this glory hasn't come without some controversy in the Sheikh Mansour era, which we'll get to, but let's first welcome our guest, who has followed Manchester City's astonishing history on and off the pitch, Welcome, Rob Harris. Rob, how are you? Oh, well, good to see you guys and uh, good to join at the start of a new season. Hope you've had a good mid-season break. It's just lovely to see Nick and I'm sure he shares the same sentiment as well. Rob, what's your sort of um, role going into this? Where do you find yourself? Well, it's been interesting watching the rise of uh, Man City, just how they're a team, obviously, we saw was really the inferiors to Man United for so many years and so long in their shadows and then elevated in such a way and presented new challenges for not only how fans view their clubs, but then how journalists watch a club too. I mean, it was, uh, it's been an absolutely incredible run in terms of a team encountering so much success and yet so many questions about how they achieved it too. So you obviously very close to this Manchester City story, know it inside out, but what are some of the more weird and wonderful stories as you've covered from the world of football? Some of them have been absolutely incredible being at the World Cup draw for 2018, a few months before the tournament at the Kremlin and suddenly getting a tap on the shoulder and it's the Russian Deputy Prime Minister with his entourage coming up to me wanting to have a word about some of my coverage of Russian doping scandal (laughs) and wanting to challenge me while surrounded by Russian TV, wanting him to be seen taking me on and it becomes a a story throughout Russia too. So pretty... uh, incredible experiences you get to witness uh, as well as the the tremendous uh, footballing feats as well uh, on the pitch. And I think it's worth mentioning at this point Rob is actually a global sports correspondent for the Associated Press so gets a front row seat at at all the biggest corruption stories, FIFA Olympic Games, uh, you know the IOC politics and stuff Rob's on Twitter at Rob Harris, I'm sure a lot of people will know and on, on Facebook as well and Rob also hosts his own weekly podcast about the big issues in sports news and that's called Sport Unlocked 
unlocked. So that's definitely worth um, tuning into as well. The stuff that we're going to talk about, FFP, when we come to it, and you know some of the shenanigans around football involving City, but also lots of other clubs. It, it's been a big issue and remains a subject of interest and, and discussion amongst fans. And it does impact ultimately what happens on the pitch, which we'll obviously talk about. Well, let's get on to the on-pitch achievements to start with. Obviously, we we listed all of those records and achievements in the introduction. But Rob, I think it's become almost a meme, hasn't it? The the way that Pep Guardiola is almost revolutionised English football from top to bottom, even down at Kiliaris in the Conference South. They're trying to play out from the back to very degrees of success. But what has he done for English football on the pitch? I mean, he's certainly brought his feet here to England. And also, I think the thing we see with Pep Guardiola is we've had the experience to witness one of the greatest coaches in football history coming to the Premier League, bringing his philosophy. And we've got to enjoy that as much as we often talk about those who've got to witness Ronaldo and Messi on the pitch. The fact is the Premier League has attracted one of the great managerial minds uh, and the way he's actually proved people wrong as well at times. I think some would hope he would actually come unstuck. The fact, yes, he'd had great success at Barcelona, but he'd walked into a team with Messi and one built with the academy structure there that brought him all the talent and having the uh, the prestige of a club behind him, whereas at Manchester City, still very much um, a club having to prove itself on the international stage to make itself a destination for the top talent. And the fact is, obviously, its success didn't come instantly. There were the um, setbacks perhaps in those opening weeks and months as he got used to English football and he has had a lot to spend and he's had to work out what to do with that talent and some of the signings haven't paid off. And yet we've got to see him also encounter a very competitive league as well at times. Yes, they have had the great success of the Premier League titles, the Centurions team as well. But actually, the obstacles that he has faced, whether it's going behind at Cheltenham in the FA Cup or the fact that actually he's not winning the title year after year. The fact I was in Lisbon to see when they came unstuck in the Champions League in the quarterfinals in um, the summer of 2020, which showed actually... He has to find new ways of um, of producing that success. I mean, Pep obviously is a fantastic coach. I think in terms of best coaches in the history of football, you've obviously got Alex Ferguson is right up there. And Pep certainly in that conversation alongside Jose Mourinho. I mean, Pep's done it at big clubs with big resources, but undoubtedly he has, even this season, we can see he's managed to overcome what looked like a dodgy spell when we thought that he'd had his sort of three really successful seasons and now he was going to need to substantially rebuild. It wasn't that long ago, two, three months ago, when when Liverpool were still title favourites, Manchester City was sort of seven to four or something. It wasn't happening for them in the first sort of seven, eight, nine games. And now they're favourites for all the competitions they're still in. It is, as you said earlier, Will, you know, the most feasible looking quadruple ever, which would be absolutely extraordinary. And when you look at the players they've had over the years, not just with Pep, I mean, pre-Pep, Vincent Company, David Silva and Aguero, for me, are the three players who've really been the heartbeat of the Mansour era. But obviously now you've got De Bruyne, you've got the way they've made it click. They play absolutely sensational football. It's great to watch. Uh, and Pep is, is now, you could argue it's his toughest season. The season where everyone else is floundering, everyone else has had injuries. I know Man United 
just a few days before we recorded this have ended that incredible winning run for Man City. But um, you could argue that this is the most difficult season, a COVID season, a behind closed doors season, a season where every other club is is falling down with injuries. But I don't know, Will, what, what do you think of Pep and what Man City do? I mean, is it not just on a different level to what most normal football fans can aspire to? I just think the way he just keeps reinventing himself is just so intriguing to watch as well. I think I saw him being interviewed by Rio Ferdinand and obviously a lot of people talk about like that three or four year spells that Pep has at clubs and then sort of moves on but obviously you sign the new deal and I know the duration sometimes gets scoffed at and we can sort of not read too much into that but he just seems to be enjoying English football and I think he spoke about this especially this season in particular when they were they definitely drew 1-1 at home to West Brom and he just looked at his side and just thought this isn't a Pep Guardiola side and sort of reinvented the the wheel turned Ilkay Gundogan into prime R9 and they've sort of rolled on to be top of the league and just back to that Manchester City that we well not all of us know and love but are just scary that he's going to be here for another two or three seasons I mean it's also a fact that Manchester City and this is something that the CIES football observatory sort of monitor on a you know yearly basis in terms of the cost of the squads and Manchester City now for a couple of years have had the most costly assembled squad in the history of world football as in if you add up you know how much they paid in fees you're basically looking at a squad of 24 25 players where you have two genuinely world-class players in every position they've got 25 players that cost an average of sort of 45 to 50 million pounds each we know generally speaking at the top end of elite european football you can't do this kind of thing without lots of money. Equally, conversely, you can have a lot of money and screw up year after year. Manchester United fans will know what that's been like since Fergie left. What's your thinking on how much it costs to achieve this, both of you? It's not very often we're talking about City boring us in a game, whereas actually how many times have Man United produced dismal performances that are really turgid and are uh, switching viewers off perhaps, whereas actually with City there is always that perhaps energy of excitement in the style and Manchester United have spent a lot and spent it badly. Manchester City have spent unwisely on certain players. Was it £42 million on Mangala, for instance? And uh, they can make those hefty investments. They can make mistakes. And they'll often say, of course, they haven't broken transfer records uh, by positions. But actually, that depth of talent that they can have in each position gives them that sort of certainty of the backup and the depth in the squad. And, you know, undoubtedly... There is spending across the game. They will say at City that they had to sort of turbocharge and accelerate that spending because they didn't have the inbuilt advantage over many years that they've done so. And I think the success for City for a lot of fans is still shaped by the failures, the fact that they were relegated, the fact that having to get up through the playoffs from the third tier. That has shaped the psyche as well, the fact that... Um, being the underdogs, we're not really there, as the, as you know the city fans talk about, and that mentality really is there. You see to this moment almost that people don't expect them to succeed and want to deny them the success, and that's why I think city fans in particular feel quite protective when there is a natural criticism of them or scrutiny of how they've achieved it. You could certainly argue we're going to come on to FFP is that Mansell got unlucky in terms of timing because he bought Manchester City just as financial fair play was about to come in. That's UEFA's financial fair play. And that would really change the whole scenario because it meant he could no longer maybe buy his way to success in the way that was originally intended. You could just tell the, the sheer amounts of money 
200 million pounds a summer on players, which now doesn't seem that extraordinary. But back then, 200 million quid a year or whatever it was, that's a lot of money. That is transformative money. And over years, that will, as long as you've got decent managers and, and everything else and all the facilities that they've invested in and ultimately that will lead you to success and ffp was originally designed to tackle debt and debt of the like manchester united was seeing around that time what was it about 700 million yeah uh, it was the plan of michelle platini as uefa president to bring that debt down and basically ffp became um okay, we're going to make sure... It's not so much about debt, it's about financial stability. And of course, this is financial stability for all the clubs in the top flight of 55 UEFA nations. There's a lot of different individual clubs who fall and foul of FFP, not just in England, but in France, in Turkey, in Italy, who will always look at things very, very locally in a way that victimises themselves. They'll have a perception that they're being victimised without realising that this is a set of rules that was brought in to try and actually lead to stability across the 55 nations of UEFA, which collectively were losing billions and billions and billions of pounds a year. And in a way, we don't have to get into the technicalities of it, but FFP demonstrably worked because losses were cut by billions over the first sort of cycle. It was brought in for that reason to try and stop clubs, basically to save football clubs from themselves. It's perfectly legitimate to have an argument over whether that should be happening. I don't know, Will, from your point of view, where where are you on sort of the understanding of UEFA's FFP? FFP and whether it was a good idea in the first place. Yeah, I think like you guys said, I think the idea is right. I mean, you only got to look across the pond with like, I know it's completely different models, but how sustainable the NFL clubs are and, and all those teams over there. But it almost feels that sometimes these measures are bought in and like pushed forward by the top teams to keep the, the top teams at the top. Maybe not so much this, but obviously we've seen recently with the sort of murmurings of like the European Super League breakaway. Like no one wants that sort of diversification of like the money to go evenly across the board so I I sometimes wonder like how we'd get another Man City to this stage because they'd have to spend that money to do what they've done but obviously when this threat's on the horizon I don't know if there was sort of dark arts from the other bigger clubs to try and stop this in its tracks. And I think one of the key things in 2014 when Manchester City were first punished for breaching financial fair players they accepted a settlement so a reduced punishment Uh, the fine and the limits on the squad, which in doing so meant they accepted being punished, which means accepting we sign up to these rules, we play in the competition and we know what we've got to abide by. I mean, Will, as an ordinary sort of football fan who doesn't necessarily cover this stuff journalistically, hasn't followed all the intricacies and the boring details of it. When City were fined initially £60 million back in 2014 and had squad restrictions for Europe, what was your view at the time? The 2014 one, I don't know if it's because it's a bit of time ago, but it didn't really stick out in my memory too much of being like, yeah, a controversial thing. I think especially as they were sort of getting into their stride and obviously got a few trophies under the belt at this time and they were sort of challenging what we had established as the, the top four. I just thought it was one of those things, which I know is quite a flippant comment to say about a 60 million pound losses. but um, Probably because it was a fine, you wouldn't actually see how it manifests itself on the pitch as well, really, because they're still in the competition. They're just they're just a rich team's getting docked money. Yeah, exactly. And, and knowing what you knew about the owners, you, you know, it wasn't going to be a trouble to find that sort of money to cover that and sort of carry on. I think when we get to the 2018 one, and obviously that was resolved recently, I think that sort of took everyone's attention because of the looming transfer ban, which you obviously then you start to question whether the manager and players will still be there. 
And of course, the threat of being kicked out of the Champions League. Yeah. The point of obviously this podcast when we talk about football uncovered and going inside it, and I guess this is why Rob's here on this particular episode, because obviously Rob and I have personal experience of years and years of covering this stuff from the inside, of asking City questions about what they were doing, getting few or no answers quite a lot of the time, and getting probably the worst abuse of our careers in terms of, you know, all football journalists every day, people who write about football will be accused of being biased against you know insert club I'm sure you think the media are biased against Birmingham all fans think that the journalists are biased against their club and, and City are no exception do you think it was more rabid sort of the Manchester City fans sticking up for themselves because like they'd never ever had this before and that you know they've got a taste of it and then all of a sudden it might be pulled away from them It's an interesting question. I think Rob touched upon it earlier. I mean, City fans for so many years, they'd been down to the third tier. They'd had massive support still following them. Very loyal fans, famously, even in the third tier, big crowds. Playoffs, um, very sort of self-deprecating sense of humour, long-suffering. The whole thing of being the DNA of a City fan up up to a certain point, certainly, you know, they're by no means a small club or a club without success. But in terms of living in the shadow of Alex Ferguson's Manchester United and going down to the third tier, I think suddenly having the lottery win of a lifetime by having an Emirati shake come along and, and spend a billion and a half, two billion pounds over his time there is very much a brilliant thing to happen for them. And therefore to see other people question the legitimacy other fans just say it's all about money and for journalists to start asking well is this actually legitimate in terms of ffp and spending i think it's completely natural that there'll be a backlash against anyone who is critical why it's been quite so persistent i'm not quite sure i don't know rob what do you think well it's interesting when people and the fans question the motives of journalists and, and try to obviously second guess why might we be so vociferous in how much we're questioning a club. And it's probably best to look at a couple of things. The easiest thing for us to do as journalists would not to be writing anything negative about City. We both know people who worked there for a long time. And actually, you know, I think back, I was there when they won the title in 2012, that dramatic day. And remember someone, you know, with the club even messaging me pointing out you know I'd followed them for years when you know they hadn't been uh, at the top and had actually been a period of struggles too and it was a an amazing moment to witness and to try to write about as well such a dramatic way to win the title and, and the raw emotion of the fans but then we have to separate that from how they achieve it and it's difficult to ask those questions, but if they're important enough, if they're really about holding them to account, then we have to. And then some City fans saying, well, you know, you're trying to deny us our success. The best thing we want as journalists when covering pure football matters is a variety of stories. You know, you watch Manchester United winning title after title. It's not very really interesting to write about. We have no influence in terms of whether or not they do win the title, you know, or, or not, or whether they achieve that. But, you know, we always want fresh stories and fresh angles. So City finally winning the FA Cup to end the title drought, City finally winning the Premier League. These are great moments um, to write about, particularly because they're produced in such a um, spectacular way. So it's not in some way against the club. And um, when we're asking these difficult questions, it's because hopefully we're doing the right thing in terms of looking at the rules, rules we didn't create, and looking at our City 
or any other club complying with them. And, um, you know, I think City fans would hope we do the same to other clubs, their potential competitors, and the fact it's an equal playing field in the sense that all are following the rules fairly. And, yeah, there's no sort of, like, personal motive. There's no sort of collusion where everyone's sort of getting together and trying to bring down City in some way. It's worth pointing out that, um, contrary to many City fans' belief, you know, journalists do know people at the clubs and get on well you've got friends I've got friends at Manchester City who do work there or have there I had a very good relationship and still have a good relationship with people at City I mean in terms of my website Sporting Intelligence um, early on in the, the Mansour reign I did work with Manchester City formally in terms of Manchester City staff wrote and did projects with Sporting Intelligence I'd have senior Manchester City officials when they signed their first famous 10-year, £350 million contract with Etihad, sort of taking me aside specifically with my sporting intelligence hat on to sort of talk through the deal and how it was structured and why most people were criticising it as being Etihad just giving City a load of money that had no sort of defensible market value. How, in fact, if you looked at it from a point of 2010, 2011 and forecast 10 years ahead to the point that it would be ending, was it actually justifiable that the £350 million deal wasn't an FFP dodged, but actually the maximum market rate that was justifiable and people go on sporting intelligence now many Manchester City fans will be gobsmacked to go on and and it'll cause them cognitive dissidence to realise that I was writing lots of stories from a point of informed sources inside Manchester City with accurate information pointing out how things stacked up properly. I think we can forget now some of the missteps early on in the leadership of City uh, in the early Mansour era. They, you know, they had to build up this sophisticated boardroom as well as they brought in, you know, all the officials. You know, I think back to encountering Gary Cook when I was asked to go in to see him in 2009, when uh, he said to myself and another journalist that Milan and Kaka bottled it over the transfer. And uh, that just showed how uh, difficult it was for City at the time. And the fact they even went public, picking such a uh, a bit of a spat with Kaka and his team about the fact he didn't want to join. Then a few months later, we had the firing of Mark Hughes. And I'm sitting there in the room when, again, Gary Cook is like hammering on the table, there is no conspiracy. That was when Roberto Mancini came in and the suggestion was Mancini was already in Manchester lined up to replace uh, Mark Hughes. And the fact, was he around the game already? When did Hughes know? And this just showed actually how City were stumbling themselves into this sort of new era with wealth and status and the greater sort of attention on them. And they were sort of still building as a club. This is the time then they're, they're trying to sort of work and make themselves competitive on the pitch, but perhaps still trying to um, sort out the leadership and get that in place too. Anyway, back to 2014. So UEFA charged City. And, and what it boiled down to is rather than earned money from normal legitimate sources, TV deals, tickets and and commercial deals. Um, Basically, the reality was um, sponsorship deals from Abu Dhabi had been um, paid at over market rates. City sold two tranches of intellectual property for a load of money, which was just simply deals that shouldn't have happened. It was just ways to funnel extra cash in. Staff had been moved off Man City's books onto the parent company's books to, to reduce wages. So when UEFA's auditors actually added up 
all the money that City had legitimately earned, they found that they'd claimed to have earned £60 million more than they actually did. So they wrote off £60 million of income. Basically, they were found guilty, effectively, of breaking FFP in various ways. They were given a €60 million Euro fine, which was subsequently suspended, and they ended up paying €20 million. Euros, and they had various wage and transfer limits. It later was revealed that UEFA had actually wanted to ban City from the Champions League back in 2014, but unknowns to us at the time, the then head of UEFA, Gianni Anfantino, had actually intervened, done a plea bargain deal, both for Manchester City and for Paris Saint-Germain, who also failed FFP in the same time. And so they weren't banned, even though um, the recommendation was for them to be banned. And I think it was at that point, 2014, when City had spent all this time telling everyone that they were doing everything legitimately, they were definitely not going to fail FFP. When they did fail FFP, it was hugely embarrassing for Sheikh Mansour, for the club, because they'd been found guilty. Uh, They made some noises about saying it's unfair, but they didn't actually appeal. They knew they'd been caught, banged to rights. They took the punishment. uh, And I think that's really the first time that maybe fans of other clubs particularly started to feel aggrieved, maybe, that the way in which Man City had bypassed FFP in that way. Rob, what do you think about this hypothesis that really it was 2014 when City were found to have broken FFP that the animus really sort of started to build then, not just from fans of rival clubs who suddenly perceived them as being proven cheats, but also those other American-owned clubs, particularly Arsenal, Liverpool and Manchester United. Yeah, and also I think we're seeing around that time as well the growing hostility from City fans towards UEFA. So we get the booing of the Champions League anthem (laughs) and, uh, you know, that sense of they're against us. I mean, you know, they had other grievances as well. Was it the fact that the racist abuse by Spartak Moscow led to the game being played behind closed doors there. So fans, even of City, couldn't go into the game as well. Am I remembering that? Yeah, yeah. No, there was absolutely legitimate complaints about UEFA's shambolic and pathetic treatment for racist incidents, including involving Manchester City. Entirely legitimate grievance. And then when we think back to 2014, obviously the reason why they were found guilty was the sense that they had overinflated sponsorships. The fact that a lot of their sponsorships came from Abu Dhabi companies, UAE firms, and UEFA was sort of testing the value of them and going to independent companies to say, actually, if this was a a company not connected to Abu Dhabi, how much would they be paying for the sponsorship if it was just, you know, from some other part of the world? And by that, they judge fair value and what might be exceeding that. And then there are even things like... um, bonuses weren't there for into those contracts and it's probably the time what we you know we should congratulate Manchester City on their famous 2013 FA Cup victory over Wigan which we all remember yeah because they of course were paid their win bonus for winning that FA Cup yeah of which of course they never actually did win the competition but (laughs) sponsorship terms they got it and so from that point we see the grievances but perhaps because there was not the significant consequence it was only the reductions on the squad and you know, the fine that they could cushion, that perhaps City fans were not as uh, vociferous in terms of, you know, the full animosity that came later when when you're sort of told, we're going to ban you from the Champions League completely, particularly when it's the one trophy that you're trying to win to complete the set, really, in terms of uh, domestic and European trophies. I mean, the one thing they haven't won is won a, a European trophy 
in the Mansour era, the thing they're really chasing. Yeah, I mean, let's get forward to the second UEFA charge against them, which obviously came about infamously because of the De Spiegel publishing uh, the football leaks documents in which a whole load of allegations were made that Sheikh Mansour and not various companies were funneling money into City, that there was a closed payment loop to pay image rights to players reimbursed by Mansour, so basically cooking the books again, that Roberto Mancini was paid by two different UAE entities raising questions over whether Pep Guardiola was also being paid by Manchester City, but separately under the counter through another entity in order to sort of reduce their wage bill. And and this, I guess, in terms of you personally, Rob, this is probably the single most, in the minds of City fans, infamous incident when you asked a question of Guardiola about how he was paid. Do you want to sort of just recall for us that? So we get these leaks that come out and obviously we throw some questions to Manchester City about them. And one is we'd discovered about Roberto Mancini while being uh, in the employment of Manchester City as manager was receiving also an income from the UAE. Uh, Nick, do you remember the name of their UAE It was club affiliated to a football club in the United Arab Emirates. So he was being paid twice, basically, so that Manchester City... And more so as a consultant, yeah. which is not in any way illegal. Nothing, absolutely nothing illegal, as long as he's declaring it to the right authorities. Yeah. And as long as Manchester City are telling UEFA, probably, so they can weigh up, you know, is he actually doing a consultancy job as stated in the UAE? That means he should earn more, according to these documents, than he is uh, for Manchester City. So we asked various questions to Manchester City and they were talking about not wanting to comment on an FFP investigation. So the months go on down the line. And, you know, we're wondering then, well, have any other managers had this same relationship? You know, do they have any links to the UAE? Are they also consultants for the club in the UAE as well? What payments are they receiving? You know, a factual question. And I make clear it's not relating to football leaks. We're asking about other relations between uh, Manchester City and the rest of the group, and of which we get no answers at all. Then fast forward to um, May 2019, and that's the week we discovered that City were under uh, formal uh, investigation for financial fair play breaches relating to this new information. And the fact that we were reporting that, you know, they could be facing a ban from the Champions League. And that had been the big build up to the FA Cup final that week. And people questioning whether or not actually in some way did this affect the title? Was their success in some way uh, diminished by um, by the financial fair play investigation. So we're in the press conference at Wembley after the match, you know, obviously a great moment of success for Man City. And he was obviously reflecting on the great successes. Now, I've always thought, why should Pep Guardiola have to be the front man for so many questions about financial fair play? And for all those months after football leaks, Pep Guardiola was effectively the chief executive because no City figure was going public to face the cameras and the club statements were basically not commenting. But Pep himself was taking questions. So I actually started um, what became a later notorious question to him by saying, I know you're not responsible. You're not on the board. You're just the manager. What do you say to those who, who look at the achievements and the investigations and say in some way it has been diminished? And I particularly chose a word that had been used in other media headlines that wasn't just my own creation. And Pep Guardiola did not seize my question to say, you're right, actually, this is nothing to do with me. I'm just the manager. Other people run the finances. He actually launched a strident defence of the club 
appearing on camera doing so, something the chief executive and others haven't done so. So I took that to sort of mean, well, okay, well, he's making it fair game for a follow-up question. And, you know, I asked him if he also receives payments from the UAE at all, from the city group there, in the same way that Roberto Mancini did. Now, I was not accusing him of taking bungs, as people have suggested, or some underhand payments, because it's perfectly legitimate for Guardiola to say be paid by another football entity. And he responded, are you accusing me? Getting really quite obviously irate but there was no denial and I've never been told by City not to mention it again not to discuss it again not to ask it again never been banned and there's never been any sort of formal denial or response or pushback against it yeah I think that's the key thing I mean Robert basically ended up asking a very controversial question basically saying to Pep Guardiola how many different ways are you getting paid by Man City and you can totally see why he might feel affronted having just won a match at, at Wembley. But at the same time, the backdrop to this is Rob, myself, Tarek Panja, other people whose bread and butter is to cover these subjects have been asking Manchester City absolutely politely by phone, by email, by WhatsApp for months and months and months to give us some kind of uh, answers to these live questions of massive importance about this has been alleged. Can you not just talk us through? Is this true? Or is this not true? A simple, simple uh, questions that could have could have been answered in all kinds of ways, either officially or with a off the record phone call, as is often the case in these things. And and there was nothing forthcoming from City. So in the end, you end up taking your opportunity to ask the questions when you can ask the questions. And and it is unfortunate because um, ultimately you don't get any closer to finding out the truth. You get the club are upset, Guardiola's upset, the fans are upset, the story doesn't move forward. And your only alternative in these situations is to decide, well, we're not going to cover this anymore. So I guess that's the question you have to ask. What, what, what do you think, Will, the role of journalists should be? Should we just say, oh, sod it, we're not going to cover FFP anymore? I don't know. It's a tricky one, isn't it? I don't know, Rob, how you feel like when you're working on something and focusing on a project. And obviously, like you said, Nick, it, it was like a, a live subject at the time. And then you get that opportunity to ask the only person that's speaking about anything to do with it. You definitely go for it. But then on the other side, it was obviously him sitting in a press conference having won a FA Cup and I'm a bit of a fence sitter I'll be honest so um but also it's much easier for the journalist in all those situations to not ask about difficult issues that might put you in conflict with people who are trying to hide stuff but if you take that view you'll never find anything out and of course before we get to the fact that when City did not face a ban there was a moment Valentine's Day 2020 that um Manchester City were found guilty and at that point, the job of the media is to report on, this is what UEFA says, they've been banned from the Champions League. Yeah, of course. And it's not for yeah. us to preempt an appeal. You know, yeah. the verdict is there. Who knows? They might appeal, they might not. It might not happen. So at that point, we report the consequences, the magnitude of a club being banned from the Champions League. From a regular football fan's perspective, that's when it sort of became like, you know, when they're producing the league tables and the Jay Humphreys on BT Sport going fifth position might get you into the Champions League. Yeah. I think that's when, like, everyone starts to sort of sit up and pay attention. And then... Yeah. You remember there were, like, rumours that they were going to go down to, like, League One and if Pep Guardiola would happily be going to Shrewsbury away and Kevin De Bruyne would be there and everything. Yeah, I mean, it is... I, I, to, I totally skipped my mind that actually they, they were banned and then obviously it was at CAS, the course of arbitration for sport, that the ban was actually cut and they were given just a £9 million fine for not cooperating. I was going to say that, obviously, what we've had now 
now and it's all played out and um, I know we sort of go into why maybe that exoneration isn't what it is but these allegations are from they came out in 2016 but were from like 2014 15 is there a chance that we could have more of this not with just Man City but with other clubs I think 2020 and the CAS ruling is the end of the road for any sort of action against Manchester City for FFP FFP will be changed or slackened or whatever I don't think Man City will ever face any further action and thank goodness for that we can all draw a line under it um, whether the exoneration I mean it wasn't exoneration they could obviously find 9 million quid and there was quite a lot of suggestions that maybe they hadn't been completely truthful in CASP and again that is water under the bridge I think in terms of quite how bad that whole tension got between the media and the city fans and maybe other clubs still if you if you're talking writing tweeting about Manchester City the instant reaction for the vast majority of other fans will be well it doesn't matter what they achieve now they're cheats and there is quite a lot of that out there I mean in terms of it being a low point for fan media relations I don't think you know hopefully that's behind us now and we'll never get back to that point but certainly I think 2020 was the low point in terms of excesses of fan reaction anti-semitic abuse on forums on twitter threats of violence you know people going on on one particular forum suggesting that it was time for the city fans to city fans would post things like the club now needs to bar journalists fans were saying it's time for us to take this into our own hands we should sort of intercept journalists on their way from the car park to the stadium and rough them up a bit there's a suggestion that fans should go into the car park and use their keys to scratch cars um home addresses um being published on twitter by fans sort of calling for action against journalists um bricks through a window on one occasion uh police report manchester city involved twitter management involved it's pretty pretty dark stuff really i think now now it's sort of drawn a sort of line under it all we started the podcast speaking about Pep Guardiola and I almost just feel it was sort of like, especially the culmination of like, especially the abuse that you were speaking about and obviously this section of all fan bases, aren't there, that are like ridiculous and the worst of the worst. But it sort of like ties into that time in social media where it was that sort of tribalism, wasn't it? And you sort of stick to people that share your own opinion and... The echo chamber. Yeah, and obviously in terms of football terms, that's probably what leads to those people doing what they've done. So I almost think it's like, you know, Man City were the story and... That's what sort of led to that, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I think maybe to finish, we throw this forward and look at where Man City are now, which is winning the Premier League this season, almost certainly, probably doing a domestic cup double. They're certainly favourites to do that and potentially, potentially winning the Champions League. That's great for Manchester City fans. You could say... We can all acknowledge that Pep's done a lot. Like you said, people playing out from the back in the ninth and 10th tiers of football. He's had a cultural change, which is very positive. He's not going to last forever there. He'll be there another season or two or three. But the Pep Guardiola era will end at some point and Manchester City will presumably revert to being one of the best teams rather than the head and shoulders best team. But just in general terms, and this is a question, you know, maybe throughout this particular series of the podcast, which is asking sort of what is the point for each of these clubs and what is the future of football? What does the future of football look like if Manchester City do maintain the dominance they're showing currently, um, whereby they and a, a very small group of other sort of super clubs are just got complete strangleholds on their leagues. I mean, in recent years, Paris Saint-Germain have had, the Spanish giants have had, Juventus have had, Bayern Munich have had. What does this actually mean for domestic football? Is it a good thing that 
one club richer than any other club can continue to sort of have a stranglehold, but not just a stranglehold domestically, but I guess be in a position where they're agitating to be major stakeholders in a future European Super League and maybe a future global league and a FIFA Club World Cup. Is that a good thing? Well, I think one of the big long-term things is what is the yeah, the ambitions of Sheikh Mansour? Is he now there for the long haul? Would he still be there or some members of his family there in several decades' time? Or the fact they've actually built up this network in the City Football Group means that actually they've already sold some stakes to uh, different entities, uh, investment group Silver Lake, that actually it becomes separated more from the UAE and it becomes a, a sort of more sophisticated business operation itself with more investors sort of coming on board and it actually loses that connection maybe with the UAE over time maybe that you know the ambitions do change but are we seeing an established order now set in stone for some years to come is this how football will be or actually in fact as we've seen with Post Alex Ferguson, Manchester United, that often when you need to rebuild a squad, the rebuilding can be quite painful and even spending a lot of money doesn't produce success. Even bringing in great coaches doesn't guarantee the success. There will be a moment that Pep Guardiola is no longer at Manchester City. Another manager will be there. There might be greater instability. There might be difficulties replacing the players and bringing in the next generation too. And uh, it might just be that... A rival team happens to have a crop of youngsters even in the academy who come to the fore and actually do manage to to mount a challenge. It could be a team like West Ham does make the Champions League. They do then get investment off the back of it and they can push on. So maybe, you know, change happens that way in the same way that, uh, you know, Juventus haven't managed to win the Champions League since signing Cristiano Ronaldo, not even um, going to win the title, it seems, in Italy this season. So the fact is, it's the unpredictability that is part of the joy of football. And it would be tedious any team winning year after year. Part of the excitement this year is now how do Liverpool recover going forward to ensure it isn't for them another 30 years uh, before winning a title. And football itself needs the unpredictability. It needs the competitive edge and it needs that to thrive because ultimately if the Premier League is dull, then the TV revenue could go down and that ultimately affects Manchester City too. I just think it's very interesting and for like clubs that have those aspirations to maybe future challenge and get into that top six and top sevens, it's... It's how do you go about that and there's different ways and means of doing it and Manchester City have gone one way. Speaking about Leicester City in this series, that they've gone another way and I think as long as there's hope for any football fan that you can be in League One and then all of a sudden be challenging for the Champions League a decade on or a couple of decades on, that's the main thing. As long as there's hope, which is probably more of a life message rather than a uh, just a football message. Thank you very much for listening to Football and Covered Series 2. Make sure you go and follow Nick at Sport and Intel and we'll be back with another podcast very soon.